several hard to say old republic podcasts out there today we will be diving into the canon and canon implications of star wars rebels in episode 1.17 something something rebels i am kelsey atherton and joining me is your co-host luke hi hello kelsey you now you just uh, you just finished Rebels, is that right? I did. I finished Rebels all of um, God, less than twenty four hours ago. Well, there you go. Uh, so so it's it's fresh in your mind. So now, well, let me think. Where should we start with Rebels? Um, let's see. Uh, you liked uh, you liked Thrawn in uh, the old Thrawn stuff, didn't you? Yeah, so I never was like I never read much of um, the novels, the Zon novels, but I read some of the adaptations in Dark Horse comics, uh, and so I have this like very clear image of like picking up like like in the grocery store as a kid. This is like the probably mid nineties, sitting in the like where they had a magazine section, grabbing a Dark Horse comic. I think. Um, Heir to the Empire, I think it was, not 100%, something in that space. Um, yeah. And there yeah. was Thrawn, who had these weird lizards that, like, um, mm. mollified force powers around him. And there was Luke, and there was Mara Jade, yeah. and the whole thing. Um, and I think, actually, that Thrawn makes a pretty good intro point for what Rebels did with canon. Um and I've been like a, a joking along with the with the rewatch. The Rebels feels more than anything, except perhaps uh, the later seasons of Clone Wars. Rebels feels like a very active attempt to curate canon and pay tribute to what uh, deep fans of Star Wars enjoyed about the expanded universe between um, the uh, between <laughs> the Jedi and Phantom Menace. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think the uh, I think the thing that um, that that Rebels does really well with that is um, Dave Filoni and and uh, everyone else who's involved, but I know Filoni uh, was principally the uh, the creator and uh, big producer on that. And yeah, they they took a lot of care with um, with the uh, with the show. And I mean, there's stuff that we've talked about in our episodes, like stuff about Malachor and how. The presence could possibly be Kray and stuff like that, and and you know we discussed Filoni's comments about how he's got something written, but he doesn't want to set it in stone. And um, I think that's really interesting the the way that he plays with it because you know he he set Thrawn up really well, and he took a he took a character. Um, 
and you know moved him to a different area of um, uh, of the canon as it exists because he was obviously uh, after the Battle of the Avon and everything in Rebels is uh, is before A New Hope. Um, so it's um, it's it's interesting how how he did that, but still at the same time uh, showed a lot of um, affection to the character of uh, of of Thrawn, including even little references to stuff like uh, Thrawn's uh, second in command, uh, Pelion, uh, I guess not admiral, but whatever commander general. I don't know. I'm not really good with military ranks, if you haven't uh, noticed that by now. It's not my forte. Um, you know, just like Ensign, I, I don't know. Um, no, but, I, you know, I thought they did a, uh, I thought he did a really good job with that. And, you know, yeah, it, for someone like me who's like, yes, give me all of this, like, tiny, inscrutable info about, like, something that happened three, four, ten thousand years ago, and I want to be able to imagine that, and then, of course, I want them to obviously go back and show it, but, you know, like, when Ezra picks up the, uh, the cross-guard lightsaber that shorts out, you know, they put that in there, obviously, as a reference to Kylo Ren's lightsaber, but, you know, also fleshing out stuff that, um, uh, I believe Pablo Hidalgo had written for the Force Awakens Visual Dictionary about Kylo's lightsaber. So, like, Filoni's, like, taking, you know, Thrawn and Malachor and tying those together and then bringing this other thing from the sequel trilogy in as well. And, you know, I think that's really interesting. It is. And so one of the things, right, um, so so much of how the expanded universe worked right is it hinged on basically like the continuing adventures of luke skywalker and what happens after what happens after endor um and thrawn right has a huge part in that because thrawn is like the last big obstacle um or the next big obstacle right we don't need to get into yuzang vong on this episode um but there's like a whole series of things they throw out there as future hurdles for the republic but thrawn is the biggest and most immediate, I would say. Um, and certainly probably the most popular. Uh, it turns out if you have a series that is defined by a deeply powerful empire that is uh, poorly managed, then putting a um, compelling villain whose main talent is good at managing a massive institution of war um, then you get some really good stuff with that. And so for Rebels, um, I forget, do they they don't introduce Thrawn, I think, until the second season. I, again, have watched all of these in the past two weeks, so my mind is a, as a soup of Rebels right now. But they give him some time, right? I think, I think he was I think he was the beginning of season three. Okay, they yeah. they basically switched him and Vader out as the big bads. Um, so... I think, um, yeah, I think it was season three, and yeah, I like they got a guy like they got thrown in there, and and like it was like uh, you know the first guy who discovered that uh, you know that you could uh, that that you could um, 
you could round up and you know pocket the change for yourself or whatever he's like the you know he's a genius and i'm i think i'm one of the only people who cares about star wars that likes rebels thrawn more than eu thrawn because i did i was not a fan of eu thrawn because whereas in in rebels he's he's competent i mean he's very he's intelligent he's a very good tactician um but it's not the same thing as it, as it was in legends like in legends he was like uh sherlock holmes times six and like it's not that all the it's not that all the bad guys, or it's not that all the powerful people have to be force users. It's just that, like, you shouldn't have someone who can, like, just pull stuff out of their ass to the point that, like, literally pulling stuff out of their ass feels like a superpower. Like, that's, you know, to me anyway. But, you know, that's whatever. So, yeah, they, they introduced Thrawn, and, I mean, they were, you know, they were walking a tightrope because a lot of people love that character. You know, and Timothy Zahn is now written in I think three, three Thrawn books now, uh, a new trilogy, and then he's got, I think, another trilogy coming out, I think. And Thrawn also, he achieved the very hard task of becoming an iconic character who is not seen or mentioned in the original trilogy. Um, and there's a handful of those, and I don't know if there's a single one more than Thrawn. And I'm talking, like, not even seen, right? Like, there, there's stuff that's blown out, right? Like, Wedge gets to be a whole thing, and it's a bit part, or, like, both of that. But, like, Thrawn just doesn't exist in the trilogy as we know it. And then he becomes this huge part of the expanded universe. And so bringing him in for Clone Wars, um, and again, I did check, it's, it's season three, he shows up. Um, and what he does is he is a very um, – the threat he poses is distinct from the Sith, where the Sith will do dark side of the Force to power. And what Thrawn will do is, like, he's an adept secretary of defense. His whole thing – I mean, he's good at battle, but he is even more – then that he is good at managing the resources of an empire. He's the kind of guy who would have had a Twitter bio that's like, um, that has something about how like, you know, like real strategic geniuses think about logistics, not tactics. Um, <laughs> thing. Um, and his, so the threat he poses yeah, he's, he's that, the is that the Empire will be managed well. That's his threat. When we see him on screen or when we know he's in a battle, what happens is that the Empire, which has all of these resources, is suddenly better at using them. Um, there are There's whole segments and arcs where what wins the day is Thrawn being summoned away. Um, I think it's especially fitting that the final act of the show is set in motion by Thrawn being called away um, to basically do a PowerPoint presentation as part of bureaucratic infighting over imperial funding for super weapons. Um, and that is the window that gives rebels their chance to, uh, to make a big move against his less competent um, subordinates. Um, and so it's a really interesting, I think. Um, and it's really 
interesting too how much he only right he's in he's in half of the show uh, that he looms as a presence um and Tarkin right has sort of goes from being um how he's been depicted in the films and other things as the as he has a very similar role right the strategic genius of empire who is more interested in marshalling the resources um and he shows up a little um, and it's sort of pushed back and he sort of becomes the person who is actually like mediating between, um, maybe Thrawn is less secretary of defense, more a, uh, co-com commander, which is a horrible acronym of acronyms, but basically the kind of guy who is responsible for everything that happens in an area where all of the things are supposed to report to the, the kind of subordinate not subordinate, the sort of overarching commander of a region, um, of a whole theater, if you will. Um, and it's very clever. He works very well as it. And then you see Tarkin managing that. And, um, you can feel when they're doing the buildup to how do we make this show fit in with Rogue One. Um, that gets telegraphed pretty hard. Um, but it does, it tells, it manages to take the arc of an expanded universe villain whose like thing is like, well, now the Empire can fight. And it makes him more terrifying by putting him in place before the Battle of Yavin. Um, it kind of uses that same skill set to say this is how the Empire was winning, which is a really interesting choice. Yeah, it is. It's um, and I think I think the thing with with Thrawn is that um, you know, he he has to be beaten by something that he can't really account for because he would have accounted for it. So it has to be something. You know, has to be like an act of God or you know, a, a freakish. Um, storm or you know something like that in the third season it's the bendu and then in um in the fourth season it's obviously ezra and uh and the pergil um and it, it's i mean it's interesting it's interesting the way that they did that you know at the very end uh, where you know I, to me at least it seemed like they were telegraphing a uh Another series, which I mean is fine. I, I like uh, I, I like Sabine and I like Ahsoka and I like Thrawn. I guess I tolerate Ezra. Um, but uh, you know, it's just um, I thought it was interesting how how they did that and and you know Filoni um, or I guess whoever was writing those episodes, um, you know, really understood that he has to be taken out by something weird, something that he can't like, account for. And, um, you know, Pergil and uh, a giant um, gray force being, I guess, <laughs> things you can't really account for. Um, yeah, it's, uh, he's, he's really good. And I mean, I think there are a lot of interesting Imperial characters in the show because there's, you know, Tarkin shows up, the Grand Inquisitor is there in the first season, um, and uh, I really like Tim, and um, 
and Callus. You know, Callus is a, is a really good, a really interesting character because he goes from a guy who, you know, literally just kills one of his men in the pilot episode, like just kicks him off of the scaffold or whatever, um, because he was, you know, because one of his subordinates like joked with him or something to uh, to, to um, switching sides to the rebels in uh, I guess in season three. So. Um, you know, it's it's really interesting the way that they did that with a character because, you know, we've talked about it before and people talk about it, you know, how are we going to do like a, a real redemption for, you know, one of these Imperial characters, somebody who's done really terrible things and then, you know, then they just went and did it in Rebels and, you know, I thought it, I thought it got done really well um, for the most part. I like Callus as a character, so. Yeah, I was not expecting to like Callus. Um, and I think one of the things um, that is interesting, right? The need... Rebels, like, the focus obviously is on this, this band, but it has the most insight into what the Empire looks like as it functions than anything, um, certainly in terms of ours, than anything else put to screen by Star Wars. And I think in terms of scope, and function more than anything outside um, outside A New Hope and uh, Empire Strikes Back, um, where you get to see, right, the way that, like, uh, Vader warps things around him and the way that, like, the bureaucracy actually, fun- the bureaucracy of Imperial domination functions. But we get to see, like, um, we get to see a whole lot of it, and it turns out, right, like, one of the things I think that's really interesting is that Kala's has sort of a special place as like a um as an agent hunting for a specific thing and then he's immediately upstaged because there is redundant or maybe not redundant but like parallel bureaucracy um it's as though he is um like an intelligence analyst with or not intelligence analyst, but like a field agent with a um with like part of the military and what happens is that the CIA keeps showing up on his turf and taking his cases. Um, and we get that in the form of the Sith Inquisition, which I think was also a very um, interesting arc. And we'll get back to that in a second. But I think with Callus, you see this whole thing where he is on a mission. He keeps getting thwarted by the same group and eventually realize um I mean, the the stranding him, doing the whole enemy mind thing with him and Zeb is a good good turn. Um, And then I thought immediately then was when we, like, see a change in Kallus. But I like that we get what we get instead is he returns to the Empire but skeptical of it. Um, And then we still see, right, he's a character defined um, by the conviction that he is more clever um, than everyone around him, um, which works great up until he comes into the uh, opposition, until Thrawn figures him out. Um, and I thought, um, and one of the things, right, that like maybe it would be handled differently in film, there's a whole lot of rebels that skirts around the fact that this is a like extremely bloody insurgency. Um, and there were like multiple points where you just assume that Kallus is going to get executed. There are multiple points in multiple episodes where lots where I would assume lots more executions happen. Um, like there's oh, no, yeah. yeah. 
And you're not going to. I mean, they do the. Uh, they. Uh, Vader hasn't burned the uh, Tarkin Town, the, the refugee camp. Um, and, uh, I mean, they're. It, I mean, it's obviously never sh really shown on screen, but I mean, there's implication that, you know, they carry out um, executions of troublesome civilians on the fall um, occasionally. Uh, and. It, yeah, I mean, like, they do, I mean, it's obviously a kid's show, so they can't, you know, go too crazy with it, but, like, they do a really good job of showing how, uh, of, of not showing it, but at the same time, you know, you, you know it's there, it's like an ever-present threat, like, uh, you know, all these people that, that Ezra knew got abducted and and everything like that, so it's just... It's, it doesn't, yeah, you, you're right about it showing the granularity of the Empire. It's, it does a really good job of showing like a day in the life of like random Star Wars character. And I mean, yeah, a couple of them are Jedi or Force sensitive or whatever, but like, you know, this isn't like the Skywalkers, this isn't Han Solo, it's, you know, it's a day in the life. And I mean, that kind of makes it endearing in a much different way than the Clone Wars, um, which I, you know, I also find um, excellent, as uh, you said on a couple of other episodes. But you know, they're just they're different aspects of looking at Star Wars because the Clone Wars is just is fleshing out like this three-year period where like everything in the galaxy changed and they never saw it coming and rebels is like showing how showing like the fits and starts that different rebel cells go through to get started and they don't know each other and then finally they are put in contact and they're almost destroyed and blah blah blah, blah. um and i mean yeah and, and there's you know there's like the Inquisitors just show up, and there's these these random Force sensitives, and I mean, then there's Ahsoka running around, and I mean, uh, outside of the Emperor and Vader, she's probably the strongest Force sensitive in the galaxy at that point. I mean, obviously Kenobi and Yoda, but neither of them were, you know, leaving their planets, so <laughs> you know, there's not to, not a lot to choose from, so. Yeah, it's uh, it yeah, I like that. It does a it, it does a granularity thing that I guess I've never really thought about. And it shows like what one of the things I think um, I think probably Malachor is the the which is the the two part conclusion of the second season um, takes place on Malachor, not a numbered Malachor, just a Malachor. Um, and it features, I think, the most interesting. The first half of this show is basically divided into um, like Ezra learning how to be a Jedi while the rebels learn how to fight together, and then um, while being pursued by the Sith, right? And then the second half is that they are fighting the Empire um, without like Inquisitors, I don't think, make an appearance after season two. Um, Vader doesn't make an appearance after that. Um, 
it's interesting how they like they shift the focus from like you have to figure out how to beat the dark side to how you have to figure out how to beat the empire. Um, but one of the things they do really interestingly with the Malachor thing is we get Maul um, introduced. Um, and we know that like we know through Clone Wars, right, that brought Maul back um, from his uh, very clear on screen death in Phantom Menace into the canon. Um, and we know that he's alive and commanding Crimson Dawn um, in the events of Solo. But what you get is this very interesting notion um, that when Ezra and Kanan run into Maul and an Inquisitor on Malachor, that's wholly by accident because the Inquisitor is tracking Maul, which is a fascinating thing to think about that. Um, and it, it's not huge. It doesn't distract largely from it or really like you don't need to know a ton more of it. But the idea that the Inquisition, that the only way to be a force user in the Empire is to be basically one of like Darth Vader's private our private security forces and you have to hunt down all the other force users you know about and not just the Jedi, but all the other force users you know about, which is fascinating. Yeah. The, the inquisitors, they inhabit this really um, interesting uh, space because after, I want to say it's like a year or so after um, the Empire's form, they've basically cleaned up most of the Jedi. Like, they find a random one here and there after that, and but they basically cleaned them up. And so, like, these Inquisitors, you know, they're just hanging out, like, you know, doing, like, bullshit on Coruscant, I guess, like, they just, you know, if they, because if there's not a Jedi to hunt, they're basically not around, so, like, they're just there, and then, so for, I guess, that would be, like, so, like, 14 years, basically, except for, um, I guess a couple of them had a run-in with uh, Cal Kestis from Jedi Fallen Order, uh, the video game, um, they basically don't have anything to do except train against each other and then I guess occasionally go like hunt possible Jedi sightings. You know, so it's like they're just they're just hanging out for a, a while, a long time. Um and and then they, they show up and I'm like it's not that they're incompetent, they're not like keystone cops, but it's just like, you know, if Vader had been there, you know, instead of that Inquisitor they would, you know, they'd be dead, but the Inquisitor's like, I'm going to do some talking first, or I'm going to, you know, use my helicopter lightsaber. And, like, man, this helicopter lightsabers, like, that's the hokiest shit I've ever seen, but at the same time, like, just, just delightful. Just completely disregards the laws of physics. Who, who cares? Who cares? And also, the... I, the introduction of that lightsaber, because what is we see, we first meet the Inquisitor who has it, and you see, okay, cool, red lightsaber with a handguard, that's a nice distinctive style. And then, it, like, is it, I don't even know if it's in the same fight where they reveal 
all the things it can do. Um, but you see the that, and then you see it's got a second side. It's like, okay, cool, mall throwback. And then it does the spinning thing, and it's like, okay, this seems like answers the question that like anyone may have had on the playground after watching like Luke Skywalker deflect blaster bolts with his lightsaber. It's like, oh, why don't you just build a shield out of it? <laughs> why don't you just build that? Um, it feels very um, not fan service because it looks cool and it works in the story, but it also feels like it is informed by that kind of like idle speculation when you don't know more about Star Wars or there isn't more that answers these questions. And then it just becomes a, and then when I think really sells the Inquisition um, is that they have this, they all have the same lightsaber. And like one of the things that really makes the empire work as a villain um, is that is the sameness of it. Um, the same pilot uniform stormtroopers don't even have the colored markings that we saw in clone troopers. Um, there's like classes of ship that look slightly different, but they're all very similar. It's a very um, constrained isn't the right term, but it's a very like it's an extremely homogenous look. And so you have these inquisitors who are like distinctive force users with their own styles, but they're all color palette is all the same, basically. And then they all have the same, um, the exact same lightsaber. Um which implies, right, that they are, like, being produced and given to them and not, like, how Jedi do it, where it's a thing you make yourself. Yeah, the uh, the production facility for the uh, for those lightsabers, and, you know, that they just, they got some niche, they got some niche industry going on in the Empire. Like, not a lot of it, but. You know they have to put the they have to put the stuff together for the uh, <laughs> the inquisitors, and I mean like they just they're so formidable, and then like they all get washed away in like fifteen minutes of uh, the the finales the finale of season two. I mean like they just all get wiped out because there's Maul. And, you know, that's, we're, we're dealing with that now. And then yeah, Vader shows up and, you know, and then Ahsoka and Vader are going to fight. And it's like, okay, they, they, they got the, they got the kids out of the way. They, uh, uh, you know, we got the, we got the lightweights out of the way. Now it's, now it's time to actually see what we really came here for. Because I mean, you know, in those episodes, you've got, uh, uh, Ezra coming under Maul's sway a little bit and, um, you know, learning a lesson about that. Kanan gets blinded. Uh, they almost set off a weapon that supposedly could, you know, destroy all life in the galaxy or something. But, you know, uh, <laughs> a second invader fight. And, you know, it's just like, there's, man, that, there's a lot of shit in those episodes. I think, I think, I think it's probably my favorite episodes. And those are my two favorite episodes in the series. Uh, those and and uh, Twin Sons is obviously really good, and the one where Kanan dies is that's really good. I mean, I guess spoilers, but yeah, I mean, yeah. So what been I, here for three years. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things the show does really well um, 
is it introduces the force gradually. Kanan doesn't reveal himself to be a Jedi until like, and I guess I'm saying gradually, but it's like the second part of the second episode of the first season. But it's, and he has this whole thing, right? Where he has, keeps his lightsaber in two pieces and like reassembles it every fight. um, Or at least he does for the first couple of seasons. They have a whole running bit where they have to keep it under wraps because it's dangerous to be there. Um, And he's sort of skeptical of even, still having it or being using his power. Um, and then we get like real stakes, right? Like Kanan um, has a better arc than a more interesting, more worthwhile arc than most force users put to film in star Wars. Um, I think maybe Ahsoka has the most. Oh, he's, he's easily the best. He's easily the best Jedi around. I mean, and if Ahsoka's a Jedi, then she's the best, and then Kanan. But you know, like that's, yeah, he's yeah, he's he's way way too good for this. And what they do, right? They show like Ahsoka and the Bendu both like explicitly state that they are Force users who are not Jedi, which is really interesting um, and good. Um, and it just does this. Thing where you get to see like what does it mean for this power what does it mean for this universe to have it in there to still have these things they do a lot um i'm trying to think what i don't know what my favorite episode would be i do think the they handle the um the arc incredibly well um the the little malachor bit um not the little Malachor bit, the two parts season two conclusion. And one of the things they do really well with it, right, is they leave a lot unanswered. Um, and they unanswered for a long time, right? We don't know. We go, there's a whole season and almost a whole other one where you don't know Ahsoka's fate. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, that's... That that was that was something. Um, I just, yeah, that's it's just a really good. This just a really good. Um, um, yeah, really good batch of episodes. I'm I'm interested to hear uh, your thoughts on on the world between worlds, which I I liked. Um, but uh, you know, I know some people didn't, and some people just you know whatever, but. Well, so it's one of the really interesting contrasts, right? Because Clone Wars also has its own uh, world between worlds section. And in, in Clone Wars, right, it's like this magical garden that Anakin stumbles into. Um, that's like, it's very, very um, ornate and over the top. And when we get to world between worlds in Rebels, it's sparse it's empty it is a place in the force um that basically exists um for time travel um not time travel right that's the maybe the wrong way to look at it but it is a path you walk to to various points in time right that's how uh ahsoka ezra pulls ahsoka from her duel with vader which we assume 
she lost before he does that. Um, or he, she would have lost if he were not there to pull her out. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think Vader's going, Vader is going into the, uh, the killing blow. And Ahsoka is still trying to destroy the floor under him. Um, and Ezra pulls her out and, uh, the implication is that she basically skipped two years, like two, maybe two and a half years. Um, because on Malachor, that's like four, uh, BBY, and then the last season of Rebels is like one, uh, you know, or I think, I think the very end of it actually occurs in, in zero, the same years Rogue One and New Hope. Um, but the implication is just that she skipped two years, and I guess it's a uh, it's a causal loop because um, Vader immediately leaves, and you know, like when when you see him leave, you know, he's like shaking his head. He's you know, like he's like, what the what the hell just happened? I don't understand what's going on. You know, he's um, and so the the implication is that when she got pulled out. Even though the pull, even though it didn't happen, I guess until technically two years later, after Ezra had seen her, um, you know, she skipped. So it's like one of those things where once you meddle in the past, it um, it causes problems. But the but this this is like the one causal loop that they could do because there wasn't anyone else around to see it because Vader's not going to, Vader's not going to tell the fucking emperor that that shit happened. He's going to say he killed Ahsoka or, you know, whatever. But, but then there's, it's contrasted later because Ezra is being shown, you know, that he has, he, or he believes he has the ability to save Kanan, but, Ahsoka tells him that, look, if you pull Kanan out, that's fine, but you will die. Because if Kanan's not standing there to block the fire at the very end, then Ezra and Hera and Sabine all die um, on that ship. And, and that's what Ahsoka tells him, you know. So it's like there are, there are consequences to it, and you can't use it for, for very, you know, frivolously and in some cases it does seem like you you know that um you know you can really uh, control how it's used at all um and so i think it's interesting and you know i, th I think they put enough safeguards in there that hopefully it won't become a thing you know where they they rely on it or you know they bring they start bringing people back from the dead and stuff like that you know like it like Everybody online, you know, wants to use it as a vector to resurrect Ben Solo, or, you know, so just like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe let's not go down that rabbit hole so far. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it was the right thing, and it's one of the things too where they introduce the world between worlds um, so close to the end. Um, right, it's the, if you count the last two, like, it's basically the last thing that happens before the final mission, right? It's the last, basically, like, kind of stand moment before the whole last little arc. And it's an incredible to, like, introduce 
there is a way for people in the force to access specific other people through the force in time, but with repercussions. And then to just very, to, to set it up, use it lightly, and then it plays into, uh, or it sort of suggests the logic of Palpatine's Gambit at the end, which is like creating some kind of, this was as best I understood it, is Palpatine creates some kind of force portal for Ezra that would basically have him go back to his parents. His parents would never be kidnapped. He would never join the rebellion and it would pull him out of all of those past events. Was that your read on it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think so. And I guess, I I guess it seems like the emperor, maybe darksiders in general, or maybe just the emperor for whatever reason, can't, access it um without using like i guess ezra as a as a uh, as a means to do that or maybe not just ezra maybe anyone like he, he was going up for ahsoka as well um yeah i so i I, th- I think the thing with ezra's parents at the very end is just an illusion like that's what the um the, the emperor is just tempting him because you know if he if he'd done it then the emperor could use it as as a way to access the world between worlds um and you see that Ezra learned from Ahsoka uh, that uh, you know that you 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 can't go back you can't change it you know you did it once and there are no hopefully no consequences from that but at the same time. Yeah, you know, don't, don't don't use it all the time. I, I do think I do like all the voices in there, and you know, kind of showing that time is immutable because you've got voices that are happening from like a seventy six or seventy year period between the Phantom Menace and at that time uh, the Last Jedi. Um, so I like that. I mean, I do have the theory that the the only person who speaks in there who is not confirmed to be force sensitive. Is Jen Urso in Rogue One, and so my pet theory is that she's force sensitive, but you know maybe marginally or whatever, and only only based on this. But you know, like you know, that's just gotta just gotta have your own theories, I guess. What what would we be doing on the Star Wars podcast if we didn't have a way to come up with an explanation for how something that happens in the film fits into the broader canon? It's extremely on brand for us to figure that out. Yeah, Yeah, you're definitely right about that. Um, It's it's just... um, Adding the world between worlds is such a gutsy move, and I like it. I I know I talk about it a lot. I, I really like Dave Filoni. I hope they give him you know, more run of the series or whatever in the future, or the, the franchise in the future. Um, uh, you know, I just, I mean, he, he just does these things, and I think they, uh, I think I think he nails them, and it's just, it's, it's interesting to see how well he does that and how well he sprinkles the stuff in there, and then it, it happens on The Mandalorian too, although to, to a, 
a much smaller degree because that's a different show. It's not trying to do the same thing that, that Rebels was doing. Um, and, you know, I just, there, there's just so much I like about the show, you know, and, and I mean, I think one of the things that I always come back to is, is the duel between Obi-Wan and, and all, and, you know, Obi-Wan keeps trying to put it off, and Ezra, you know, uh, futzes around and falls into it, and it's like, um, you know, it's like, uh, it, they, they, you know, they have this war of words, and Obi-Wan's not going to fight him until Maul finally figures out that Obi-Wan's actually there protecting someone, protecting something, and, um, and then Obi-Wan's like, okay, I guess I got to do this, and they do the duel, and it's very reminiscent of, um, a duel of fates in the Phantom Menace because Obi-Wan takes Qui-Gon's stance and Maul notices it and so he's like he's gonna use the same move but um, Obi-Wan comes down faster with the red slash and just catches Maul and it's 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 really well done because it's so short and and I mean then Maul is just you know he's dying and he's you know like the last thing you can think of is like, you know, the the boy that Anakin heard that Obi Wan is guarding is the chosen one in in Obi Wan's view, and you know he's going to avenge all of them. And I think it says a lot that Obi Wan gave uh, burned Maul's body, gave him like a a Jedi funeral, um, because earlier in the Clone Wars, you know, Obi-Wan tells Maul, he says, I know you didn't choose them. You were taken before, you were taken before you could make that decision. Because uh, he was stolen as a boy. And so it's, you know, it's interesting to see him just, you know, he didn't want to fight Maul. He didn't want to kill Maul. But then when he had to, you know, he comforts him as he dies. And then, you know, Respectfully, you know, buries a foe who at one point killed the only woman that Obi-Wan ever loved. So, yeah, Obi-Wan's a better person than I am. I'll say that. There's, there's so much. Twin Sons is a really perfect, tidy little episode. Um, and one of the things it it does so well, I think, is we see... Um, up until that point, all the fights with lightsabers have been fights and they've been like varying degrees of like, this is a duel or this is like a battle with several people. But you see like there's this whole level of skill and give and all this back and forth um, and experience. And the duel on Twin Sons is one of the fastest, if not the fastest um, in the thing. It is. It's like when you're watching, like, I don't know if you had this experience. The first time I, like, watched fencing at the Olympics, right? Or, like, watched, like, when they're broadcasting, and I was like, oh, this is going to be, it's going to be, like, a big thing. And then, like, they, like, announce the start, and then you hear the buzzer in a second because someone just figured out the exact right arm positioning um, to land the tip of their blade on their opponent. And... It feels like that, right? It has that kind of almost, 
I don't know, like muscle memory or like pneumatic skill. It just it's so quick, um, but it works very well because the point, right? Um, Maul is powerful in Rebels, but he is not. Maul that we see on screen is probably at his most powerful in Clone Wars, um, or you know, for however briefly we see him in Solo. It's a very powerful version of Maul. The Maul we see in Rebels is still powerful, but is not that same being. It is a like wounded animal lashing out more or less throughout. And Obi-Wan, um, the other thing it reminded me of too, is how quickly Obi-Wan and Vader's duel happens in um, A New Hope, where there's positioning, but the important thing, right, is that the bad, the fight happens very quickly and is just done. Um, just as long as Luke sees it. That's all that has to happen. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean... Maul is a... Uh, he, he's just a guy at the end of his rope in, in Rebels. Like, he's tried everything. He's tried everything. He's... Uh, you know, he was the apprentice to the one of the strongest force users ever and and he died to this you know or you know he got cut in half by this punk kid and he like tried to like bring himself back up and uh and Palpatine smacked him down again in the clone wars and you know he he's doing you know he's running this like crime syndicate but you know it's you know he's he's still trying to figure out a way to get back in the game Whatever that means to him, I mean, and, and I mean, it's clear that the, that like his endgame was trying to kill Kenobi. Like, he would have died in you know on Tatooine trying to figure it out. And he's just yeah, he's like a rabid dog. He's just he I don't know. You know, there's that thing like uh, you know, when the, why does a dog chase a car? You know, like, even if it caught the car, what would it do with it? That's the kind of thing with like Obi Wan. Like, if Maul kills Obi Wan, what's he gonna do? Right. Might as well just die at that. I mean, really? Like, he, like well, he doesn't have anything else to live for. Isn't his other goal to kill Palpatine? Uh, I mean, I think that I think that was a goal until the end of the Clone Wars. Like, I think I think season seven of the Clone Wars is when that dream ended. Because if he could have worked with Obi Wan and Anakin, or you know, somehow gotten Anakin as his apprentice, you know, whatever his goal was, you know, I think then you could do it. But after he's, you know, had a, I mean, Palpatine could have killed him like ten times when they fought on Mandalore, and I mean, he just abused them all. And then, I mean, he got beat by. Then he got beat by Ahsoka, and I mean, he would have been—he was almost killed then. It's you know, it's like I don't really—I mean, I'm sure he would—it would have been one of those things where, like, I, yeah, if I'm in, if I'm there in the moment, yeah, I'd kill him. That'll be great. But you know, I mean, that's—I don't know—that's a tall ask from all at that point. Maybe I mean, but yeah, he, he might be—he might be uh, down for it.
So one of the things um, we haven't talked a lot, we've talked a lot about like the force users, which is, I know this is a Star Wars thing. It's sort of what happens, but I think one of the things that really um, stands out, right, is the weight and the skill and the importance of the, the whole like little rebel crew. Um, and especially I think um, who all come into their own throughout it. And I think one of the things that's really, um, good and worry about right is they give each of the characters basically at least a couple one or two episodes to get into this is what makes this person click this is why they're a rebel this is what has been driving them to fight in these incredibly long odds you don't need that right for clone wars where like the clones are literally bred for battle um and you don't really need it for much after but like what is it why are these people fighting when the odds are so high is um great and i think of all of them i think Hera gets by and large the the most interesting arcs in it um and makes some of the more like clearer decisions um you could imagine uh much about like maybe 80 percent of the same lines happening um for like could be written for a character who is like a Leia analog. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think I think Hera's really interesting because, I mean, I think she and Kanan might be the only like good parents in all of Star Wars. I mean, like there aren't a ton. I mean, like Shmi is you know Shmi is obviously a handy and stuff like that, but. There aren't a ton of uh, of great parents that we get to see in Star Wars. Then you get this whole, you get this whole thing where you know Kanan and Hera are just uh, you know, their their mom and dad to like these like, you know, a droid a droid that you know, at one point had you know shows PTSD because he got shot down in a Y wing and they try to put him in a Y wing and he does not want to get in, and you know and you've got Zeb who's it's almost the entire species has been genocided by the Empire. Uh, Sabine, who uh, it, it hasn't already, but they will be purged soon enough. Um, and then, you know, they, they kill Ezra's parents. You know, so it's like you've got these two people who obviously love each other and, you know, there's obviously something there. But, I mean, they're taking care of, like, these four, these four doofus kids and, like, you know, it's just, it's, I mean, it's really refreshing to see something like that in Star Wars. So, like, to see, like, positive parents. And I mean, I don't think that they always put bad parents in because, you know, they want to. I just think that that's sort of something that comes up in Star Wars. So there's this great, it might be reported, might, I think it's a reported event and not just an anecdote, but there's this great little story. Um where when Kathleen Kennedy was talking to George Lucas about Disney, you know, buying all of Star Wars, and she's trying to figure out what it was to him that made him make those movies. And he talks and he has all his stuff about, like, the wills and all that, but he asks him specifically, like, now what was going on in your life when you made it? Um, And George Lucas was, like, his... Dad was, I think, getting ready to um, retire from running this hardware store and Lucas didn't want to take it over. 
And so Kathleen Kennedy sticks, latches onto that, right? The, the thing that inspired George Lucas, that most drove him, like his big personal feeling for making Star Wars was this feeling of not wanting to have to follow in your father's footsteps. And like there's, I'm sure there's essays and there will be ink spilled across the internet and paper forever about what it means to, about like Star Wars and parenting and all that, like you must kill your father, that, that. But I think one of the things that is so striking about Rebels' relationship to family um, is that you have a character who, you all of the characters that you meet basically were on their own by um, as a sort of a response to the events around them, right? As a response to living under empire. Um, and they build a family together. And the thing that Ezra is offered, right? Like the last temptation he's given is family. Um, and what instead they do is they prioritize the chosen family at every time, basically, until like it is their life or the lives of their chosen family. I mean, we even see it with Sabine, right, on, on Mandalore. She comes back for her family. She saves the family, at least for what we see on screen, um, and then chooses that to go back to the people who had taken her in. Um, and even the very end, right, the conclusion is told by Sabine, who gets to be the sort of the, the narrator documentarian of the group, and she gets to talk about what it means um, to know this history and record it. Um, and that's remarkable, right? So much of Star Wars is dead ends when it comes to family and the breaking with the past. And this is very much about keeping a story alive. Um, the Kachakuri we see, right? This, this uh, Twi'lek um, ancestral totem where every family member adds to it and then you pass it down for generations as this like deeply personal art is another way to do it it's a really interesting thing to weave through a show about like insurgency well i mean you gotta have uh, you gotta have something to fight for i guess <laughs> I mean, you do it's one of the things yeah. that's like really when star wars stumbles um it's because the battles are real, but the stakes are super unclear. Um, I think one of the things um, that is trickiest in the sequel trilogy are all the moments where stakes are unclear. Um, and there's plenty of those in the prequel trilogy too. And there's, um, but stakes are pretty clear throughout the original trilogy. Um, but there's so much of Rise of Skywalker feels like you don't know what happens if they lose that fight. How does it change anything? Um, or why are these people doing this? And you get inclinations and there's some stuff that's like very blatantly stated, but you don't get the feeling of it. Um, and I think Rebels handles it really well. Yeah, it's... I mean... They do a good job of making you care about this uh, uh, useless, like, prairie planet uh, out in the middle of nowhere. It's not useless. It's loneliness. Oh, God. I mean, like, 
you don't get me wrong, with that with that person series up and down, but like come up with a different name for your animals <laughs> like loath loath cat, loath reptile, loath dinosaur. It's like okay, we get it. We we get it. Just just call it something else. I don't care. I don't care what it is. Just call it something. I I like And like Ezra's like, I gotta protect <laughs> What? I like to think naming every animal species on the planet by the adjective for the planet is a tribute to Kevin J. Anderson's style of science fiction. Well, I mean, maybe that that's probably why Rebels is so good now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> it's, one of these days, Kevin J. Anderson is going to figure out that there's like some weirdo online who just like keeps praising him. He's going to be like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy when he and Tom Veitch figure out how like how much I enjoy their stuff they're just going to be like what the fuck is wrong with this guy like who is this one person that keeps talking about Tom Veitch online <laughs> it's no. it's I mean yeah Rebels is great but there are like there are little things about it that just drive me off the fucking wall like the most the loath whatever things and like I don't know why Ezra just everything Ezra does just drives me nuts like and I get it I get that he grows I get that you know like he he's a good Jedi I understand that he just gets on my fucking nerves yes no there's and I mean it's a kid show and yeah I get I get all that I 100% get it but still Little Dennis the Menace ass Jedi. I the the thing where he has a slingshot in his sleeve, um, really funny. Um, and then he like keeps using that into battles. Him having a, yes, and him having an ion blaster in his lightsaber, like I've never rolled my eyes so hard in my entire life. It and I feels, guess that makes me like like try hard or whatever. But come on now. It Come feels on. like what a fifteen-year-old would do, though. Like, if oh, you have, like have... without this religious tradition around you, and like these are the rules that you've known since we um, abducted you from your parents as a child. Um, I mean, since we inducted you into the order for a lifetime of uh, monastic tutelage. If you didn't have that, right? Like every Jedi would be building like fucking gimmicks into their lightsabers. Well, not every, but many. It's really. Well, the... <laughs> Like, okay, so one thing, like, I mean, I'm not particularly excited for the High Republic stuff, but one thing I do like is, like, on the cover of this thing, these Jedi have, like, these, like, weird and ornate and, like, different hilts. And I really like that because, in my mind, like, crafting this thing and building it, you know, it's like a, you know, it's like a, it's like an, an honor weapon, you know, you, you craft it yourself and you build it to these specifications so you can have an honor duel with the, uh, you know, another religious sect, you know, as, as one normally does. Um, it, but, you know, on the front of the High Republic stuff, they have these things, and, like, one of them has, like, a cross guard, but it's not like a cross, you know, it's not like a lightsaber, or it's not like Kylo Ren's cross guard, it's just like a regular cross guard. You know, people are like, why do they have that? I'm like, I, because it looks fucking cool. Like, who cares? Like, yeah, like I posted that, and someone responded, and they were like, "It holds Wi-Fi antennas. Who gives a shit?" You know, I mean, like, on the <laughs> one hand, yes, you have to have an explanation for everything, but at the same time, like, 
it's a lightsaber hilt. Like if I got to do one of those, it would probably have like a Swiss fucking Swiss Army knife in it. Like I don't know. Like <laughs> no, absolutely. There's so much. And there's so much, and they fill they fill this universe with a lot of like really interesting little detail and like very individualized choices, despite the uniformity of the empire and i think that's something that they really hit at throughout right um it also i think uh i think um rebels is the only uh star wars series where we know that anime is canon <laughs> i mean <laughs> i mean hentai was already made canon by uh, solo so i mean there's <laughs> Um, well, 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 if we're really going all the way back, we're talking about the, the monster in the, uh, in the trash compactor, but, uh, <laughs> no, fair, but yes, it's came in there. Um, and then one of the things, right, they do, and there's some telegraphing moments. Um, I think we really like, we know through basically just understanding anything about star wars but especially like in rogue one where you see the um the sort of end result of the mon mothma sagarera debate um i was i was joking about this but in the in rebels they talk about war crimes and laws of war as rules of engagement um i think they do a pretty good job if even if you're doing a heavy-handed you can't do war crimes but if you don't do war crimes how will you defeat the empire discourse uh, but I think they do a pretty good job of at least the idealized version where you don't do war crimes because it undermines your cause. Um, but it's very heavy-handed. Like, they don't make Mon Mothma particularly a sympathetic figure either. Um, it's Well, I think, I think one thing that Rebels does well is that they show the difference between Mon, Moth, Mon Mothma's, like, um, like, tepid liberal idealism um which i mean is obviously necessary to a degree because um you know she you know held the rebellion together in certain ways and everything like that um but it also shows that like her limited scope at the beginning of this movie or at the big uh in the show and even what she shows in rogue one to an extent is you know it is contrasted with Saw, who, while, you know, while we're all like, yes, Saw is right in many ways, the things that Saw does are abhorrent. Like, he wants to kill the last Geonosian, the last one who is like, carrying this queen egg that, you know, can bring the Geonosian species back. Like, you know, that's, I mean, that's just doing genocide because, you know, you have PTSD. And I, I get, you know, I mean, that, you know, that that's hard, but, you know, it's like, that's what Saul's going to do. And then at another point, he's going to blow up this Imperial transport that has, like, a bunch of scientists and doctors who've been abducted into slavery by the Empire. And it would have killed Ezra and Sabine as well, just to blow up this giant kyber crystal. And it's like, his ideas and his... Um, his goals and even his, in many cases, implementation is sound, but, you know, like, 
you get to the other end of it and you're like, yeah, dude, we could take out this giant kyber crystal and rescue all the scientists and be fine. And he's like, but I could just blow up the kyber crystal. It's like, okay, you're just blowing up the slaves. Just, I mean, like, he's he's not, but at the same time, like, in those episodes, he kind of is. Like, he's like, he's just going to kill this Geonosian because he hates Geonosians. And, you know, he thinks he'll recommend the Empire or something. And literally, there's, like, they don't understand it, but the Geonosian's drawing a Death Star, like, in the sand for them. <laughs> they just don't understand it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's... I just, I think that's, I think it's really, they, I think it's a really interesting contrast. Very, um, they, it's very clear, right? You need to, how do you draw the line between Saw as portrayed in Rebels? How do you bend Saw as seen, or not in Rebels, in Clone Wars, into Saw in Rogue One? Um, and I think of all the, like, cinematic characters who have appearances in the show, I think he has the most clearly bent towards cinema um, arc in it, and certainly there's. We meet him in one season, and then the next season he looks like he is aged twenty years. Um, there's a lot yeah. going on with that. Yeah, I mean, Saul's like a he's a really great character, um, and he's really interesting because without him, the rebels. I mean, they never get off the ground in the first place, but, you know, they never, uh, they never figure out what, what's happening. You know, when he dies on Jetta, he dies, like, sending Jen away, you know, telling her how to uh, defeat this thing that's about to kill him. And so it's, it's a very interesting thing from being like, okay, he, um, he did this, and he dragged the rebellion along, even when they didn't want to be dragged along. And he is a, you know, an integral part in getting them to, in getting them from being like the tiny, teeny, tiny little rebellion on Onderon that we see in the Clone Wars, where Saul and his sister Stila um, are putting together like an Onderon militia, all the way up until Rogue One, and then a New Hope, and then everything after that. And you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know some of the things he did were short-sighted and in some cases, I mean, you know, ethically, you know, evil or wrong, but without him, there's no successful rebellion, still an empire. And one of the really interesting things they get to, um, and they touch upon a lot, um, or in a few places in this, I wanted to talk about, I think the last battle is, it's not, like a standout, like a great episode of the show, but it's one of the ones that's really interesting if you've ever watched like the Clone Wars and as uh, someone who sunk many hours into the Clone Wars, they have this one episode where um, some battle droids are left guarding an old Republic depot as a trap. They had decommissioned them. They chose not to obey the... Uh, deactivate order that came at the end of the Clone War. They like fight Rex. It's this whole thing, and the whole thing really like it plays out right. It has its whole like here's these obstacles they have to overcome, and then the Empire shows up, but it really tries to tidy up so much of the prequel trilogy. Where how do you have this huge war, and then the thing that emerges at the end of it is neither of the parts that we're fighting. Um, and you get to the point right where the 
No, I was just going to say, you just end up with the French Revolution. You know, you start out in two sides of the revolutionary side is fighting the, uh, the, um, the, the different, uh, yes, and, uh, and then at the end, you just end up with Napoleon's empire, you know, getting spat out of the end. That's actually like a really good good framing of it, right? What is Palpatine but a Bonapartist? Um, yeah. In in Star Wars, because the Empire, right, sort of supplants it. it the war fought between the Republic and the Separatists ends up with both Separatists and Republic forces on um, in the rebellion. And how does that happen? Well, it turns out if you have if a sort of a top-down it's not even, it's a legislative coup it's not even a military coup right once chancellor and then once the war is over the empire builds a second army loyal only to him rather than the first army built that uh, was loyal to the republic and convinced him to convince the republic to have an army once you built that infrastructure of the state up you can then supplant it with your own thing it's a really interesting choice and we see um a lot of what Thrawn does is about like production and weapon design for it. We see lots of recruitment and training and induction into the Empire. Um, and we get, it's touched upon lightly, but you get the sense of like Imperial resources being strained um, by continuously having to fight. Um, yeah, it's neat. Rebels, turns out, good show. <laughs> Yeah, they uh, they did a lot with it. It's really good. Um, I don't have much else to say about it. I don't think, except that I really enjoyed it, um, and that I'm looking forward to the uh, whatever sequel series they decide to come up with. I absolutely. I guess like the only other thing, and I guess which we're going to see is um, that there's several characters who made appearances in Rebels scheduled to show up in um, the next season of Mandalorian, um, which is good. And it'll allow them to do something where, like, a lot of Rebels spends time in, like, euphemism talking about, like, oh, this band of Rebels just stuns all the uh, stormtroopers they fight. They're less lethal. And, like, that's just how you're lampshading this for kids because they definitely don't stun people when they blow up their vehicles um, with them inside. Um, but that's a whole other thing. I like to think that the rebels just, um, you know, they're like, oh, we stunned them. And then, like, once the camera moves away, they just go and shoot them. I, and there's so much deadly people off screen death in this. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. maybe it's like a Batman comic about off screen death. Yeah. Um, one of the things that they do really well is like there's the episode where this is, I think, the last thing I want to talk about where Hera leads a squadron to Lothal and you have this incredible space battle, narrowly like one, and they pass through. Um, and you're like, okay, this is how it's going to go. And then the next thing they show, right, is that Hera's squadron meets just a sea of TIE fighters. And it doesn't look like it's going to go well, but the way they show that is you watch everyone get shot down at a distance. Um, Mm-hmm. You're like Y7, TV Y7, whatever rating, but also manages to really show some like horrific stuff. They do a lot with off-screen impact um, and violence. 
um, it's really well done for the you know parameters of this has to be something seven year olds can watch. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm absolutely excited to see what they do with these characters next um, in The Mandalorian, whenever those ones show up, or if we get another animated series. Disney's gotten pretty good with its Star Wars animated series. I think there's there's room to mind there. I haven't... Yeah, there's room to mind there. Yeah, Resistance is a thing, right? That, that happened. Um, that, was a, that was a cartoon. It um, sure existed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no offense to Rebels, but uh, yeah. Pilots is not my thing. If it didn't have the Force and lightsabers, eh, eh, not my thing. Um, anyway, well, uh, Kelsey, I, um, yeah, I think I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Um, if anyone has any questions, though, please email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. We are still working out our whole quarantine episode bits. Um, but if you have questions about Rebels, about canon connections to Rebels, about Star Wars things you would like us to cover, email us, photorpodcast at gmail.com, and we will find the time to answer them in an episode. Um, thank you all for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. I'm Atherton KD at Twitter. And I'm at Luke is Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the force be with you.